0: If you have your Bibles, open to the book of Revelation. We're in a series called Letters from Jesus. We're in week chapter 4, studying through seven letters that Jesus wrote to seven churches 2,000 years ago, but that are still applicable to us today as God's church. If you haven't already, reach inside your bulletin, pull out your notes, or open up your app. For those of you streaming online with us live, thank you for being with us. Every week, nearly 30 states are represented through our online stream, people literally from all over the country uh, taking part in our church. So we're glad you're here. I'm glad all of you are here online. Why are we studying the book of Revelation? Here's what we have said from the first week of this series. Revelation 1, 1 promises this. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, that's you and I, what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. That word revelation in Revelation 1, verse 1 is a Greek word. It's the word apocalypsis. It's the reason we call the end of the world the apocalypse, but apocalypsis does not translate apocalypse. Apocalypsis translates to uncover, to reveal, or to disclose. When this word refers to a person in ancient history, it means that person becomes clearly visible. Every time we see this word in the New Testament, it referred to somebody that was hidden that became more clearly visible. So we're told by studying the book of Revelation that hidden things about Jesus that we are not aware of will become more visible if we'll read it. We're also told we'll be blessed if we study this book. In Revelation 1 verse 3, we read, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart What is written in it because the time is near so we're studying this book so that we might see jesus more clearly So that we might know him better So we might find out some hidden things about our relationship with him We weren't aware of before and we're studying it so that we can be blessed And we said the first week of this series if we'll have a spirit to receive Would you say jesus teach me i'm open to everything you want me to have And if we'll live within the proximity of the promise if we will in this season Push into jesus a little bit that we will receive a blessing And a revelation from God about who Jesus is through this series. So we're studying. Today we're in letter number three of seven to churches. We've been with the church of Ephesus. We've been with the church of Smyrna. Today we're with the church of Pergamum. Before we stop and pray real quick, let me say this. If you're a Christian in the room, get ready. This is by far the strongest of the letters that we have read so far. If you're not a Christian in the room, I want you to listen through the lens of how you view Christians and Christianity. Because everyone I know who's not a Christian, but who knows Christians, wish they would act more like Jesus, wish God would hold them more accountable. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I think you'll find great comfort in the accountability that God will one day place upon those people who say that they're his followers. Pretty strong message coming. So let's take a deep breath and ask God to speak to us. Would you just bow your heads, close your eyes real quick, take a deep breath. And would you whisper from your heart to heaven, speak to me, Lord for your servant is listening. This is how Eli taught Samuel to pray when God was speaking. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. God, we pray you'd speak to us today. The words we're getting ready to read are yours for us. They're not mine for our people. So God, let us hear from you for what you want our lives to know so we can become more like Jesus. For the Christians in the room, challenge us like you challenge the Christians in the church at Pergamum. For those who aren't Christians, help them to see the standard you will hold Christians to, so Lord, possibly they will fall in love with your standard of holiness and perfection, not just what they see in the lives of people in their life who call themselves Christians. We love you and we need you. Speak to our hearts. We're listening today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation 2, verse 12 says this. To the angel, for those of you who weren't here, verse uh, week one, the word angel translates best pastor or minister So to the pastor of the church in Pergamum, write, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one... Who receives it? Letter number three in the book of Revelation goes to Pergamum. Let me tell you a little bit about this city. Pergamum was the capital of the Roman Empire in Asia, and it was called the greatest City in Asia It was the capital of the Roman Empire Even though it was a little smaller than Ephesus And Smyrna because of its Placement in geography It was 15 miles inland from the coast If we look at our map again We see that Ephesus was right on the water Not well protected Smyrna was right on the water Not well protected So Rome set up its capital in Pergamum Which was also basically a, A city that was on a hill Pergamum was built on a hill That rose more than a thousand feet from the plains of the Caicos River Valley. So from miles around, you could see this city. It looked like a fairy tale city. Even if you go to it today, you see this city that literally sits on top of this giant hill, more than a thousand feet above the plains. Pergamum was a place of learning. It was an educated city. It had the second largest library in the world with more than 200,000 scrolls. It rivaled the library at Alexandria in Egypt. As a matter of fact, they used to get all of their paper, their papyrus from Egypt, but when the ruler of Pergamum tried to steal the curator of the library in Alexandria, Egypt said, no more scrolls for you. They cut them off, so the the people of Pergamum had to invent something else to write on, so they created parchment, which was a leather that you could write on. A lot of people believe the word parchment actually comes from the word Pergamum because they became the world's greatest makers and marketers. ...of parchment, leather that you could write on and turn into scrolls. Pergamum was also a spiritual place. It was a place of worship. It was the center of Caesar worship in Asia. They built the first temple in the continent of Asia, devoted to worshiping the emperor of Rome in 29 BC, about 30 years before Jesus was born. And it was home to the temples of Zeus, Athena, Asclepius, and Dionysus. This was a place of worship, of education, of security. But none of you came here today to learn about Pergamum. You might be glad for a little bit of the background, but you didn't come to church today for a history lesson on Pergamum. You came today to hear about Jesus. You came to see what was revealed about Jesus. You came to see what was uncovered in your heart so that you could get closer to Jesus. And here's what we're going to do today. Every week, we've looked at three key areas of each letter, what's revealed about Jesus, what's uncovered in our hearts, what's the blessing to receive. But today, I've put a key question with every one of those areas that I'm going to ask you To Answer in your small groups this week in your men's groups in your women's groups in your couples groups I'm going to ask you to hear the question today begin to think on the question today But actually answer these questions in these key areas that we're going to roll through as we go through the message We're going to start number one where we started every week. What is revealed in this letter to pergamum about jesus? Look at verse 12. What do we learn about jesus? Look at verse 12 We learn something different Than we learn in any of the other letters It says, to the angel or the pastor of the church in Pergamum, write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. This is a New Testament phrase that clearly means two things to people who read the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of the early church. A double-edged sword is a description both of the word of God, according to Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, is sharper than any two-edged sword, but it's also a picture of the word of God that became flesh, Jesus. In John 1.14, we read that Jesus was the word. But I want you to look at closely because this Greek word, word, was the word logos. We get the word logic from it. In the ancient world, Logos was the heartbeat of wisdom. Logic was real understanding. Logic was the very root of all things that that could become known. John said literally, wisdom, what could be known of wisdom, what could be known of truth, wisdom came down to earth and made his dwelling among people in God's Son. Jesus was wisdom. Wisdom was Jesus. So a place, Pergamum, that prided itself on being smart, Intellectual scholarly having lots of knowledge had a letter written to them by the source of all knowledge himself Jesus And he is said to be one who has a double-edged sword Now here's what you need to see if you've been tracking with us in the series This is the first threatening image of jesus This is the first intimidating image of jesus to the church at Ephesus, Jesus walked among the lampstands. He held the stars in his hands. He, he basically said, I see churches. I have authority over pastors. Okay, not real threatening. Good to know, not threatening. Last week, he was the first and the last. He was one who died and came back to life. Good information to know, but Jesus says, now I'm coming and I have my sword out. It's kind of an intimidating message to Christians hearing Jesus say, I'm coming to you, but my sword is out, a two-edged sword you say what what are the two edges of god's sword because when you had a double-edged sword each of them served a unique purpose what are the purposes and the uses of god's word i want to give you two today that i think apply one edge number one of god's word is special revelation it's special revelation edge number one of god's word jesus says i hold in my hand the things that will guide you and direct you into into all of god's truth into all of God's promises, into the direction God wants you to have. Jesus says, I bring with me special revelation from God. I bring bring with me things that will help you know God. I bring with me things that will help you Connect to god those of us who want to follow god want to know how we follow god Those of us who want to follow god and be connected to him want to know about him Jesus says when I come I bring you the truth of who god is how to connect to god how to live for god How to follow god how to be one with god i'm bringing you the source of truth special revelation But jesus says there's also another edge to this sword and it's serious accountability Jesus says, I come with special revelation. I want you to know who God is so that you can follow him. But here's the second edge of that sword. It's serious accountability. He said, now that you know who God is, now that you know how God desires for you to live your life, now that you know what it looks like to connect to God, you're going to be accountable for what you know. Jesus judges our hearts and he holds us accountable for our obedience to his truth and his promises and his direction. We cannot know God's standards. We cannot know God without his word. So he gives it to us, but he says, now that you know, you are accountable. The apostle Paul in one place said, I, was, I wasn't held totally accountable because in a lot of areas of my life, I acted in ignorance and unbelief. But when the truth became known, I became accountable. Those are the two edges of God's sword. On one hand, great revelation, great information, great promises to follow. On the other hand, great accountability. Great accountability to follow. Great accountability to obey. You say, Christian, that's not, that's not all that threatening. That's not all that threatening, is it? Well, it is when you combine it with the other reference to the word of God being a two-edged sword. Because he, in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, there are two verses about what God's word does as a two-edged sword that, I want to be honest, intimidated me as a Christian a little bit this week. Intimidated me as a pastor a little bit this week changed slightly my image of meeting god for the first time this week according to scripture and who jesus said he was to the church at pergamum i want to read you the verse and then i want to unpack a few words for you revelation 4 hebrews 4 verses 12 and 13 says this about this word of god this double-edged sword it says the word of god is alive and it's active It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Two words in those verses that I want to point out to you. It says that God's word judges. Remember, the word of God became flesh, Jesus. God's word judges. The Greek word is kritikos. It's the word that we get the English word critic from. A critic is one who fully understands something, fully evaluates something, and then can give an educated opinion on something. We read that Jesus is a spiritual critic of our life. He fully understands us. He fully understands and is able to evaluate who we are spiritually, and he's able to give feedback. Jesus is the only one who truly knows every motivation behind every action of our life. Remember, he told Ephesus, the world looks at you and they see one thing spiritually. I look at you and I see something different because I know the motivation that's inside your heart and why you're doing what you're doing. Jesus is a faithful judge. But according to this verse, he's a judge to be feared if we are not being accountable to what he's given us to live by. We read that the word of God lays bare, lays bare our hearts, lays open our hearts before Jesus. Now, this is a Greek word that's difficult to pronounce, but the imagery of this Greek word in ancient literature, I don't think you will ever forget, like I don't think I'll ever forget it. This Greek word means the most intense face-to-face engagement possible. That's what this word, Jesus does this, it says, lays bare our hearts. Jesus engages us in the most intense face-to-face engagement possible. One of the ways this word is used in Greek literature was of Greco-Roman wrestling. If you've ever seen high school wrestling, that's not really Greco-Roman wrestling because they're down on the mat. Greco-Roman wrestling is a style of wrestling where you're standing up, you're throwing people. But this word refers to two wrestlers standing eye-to-eye who have each other around the throat, looking at each other face-to-face. That's what it means to lay bare. To literally, it's a picture of having someone's life in your hands while you're looking at them eye to eye. Says so that's what Jesus does. The other picture of this used in literature is of a conquering king who when he conquers a foreign army has the king of that city Or he has the commander of that army down on his knees and he takes his sword and he puts his sword underneath the chin and he points it at his Adam's apple and he makes that commander who's surrendering look him in the eye. If you can picture this, a a few years ago there was an episode on TV of Once Upon a Time, kind of a fairy tale miniseries, and one of the actresses in it was portraying the Disney princess from Brave Merida and, and she did this. This is the picture of that word. I want to be honest with you. I never pictured myself standing before Jesus that looked like this. But the Bible says that's who he is. And the Bible says one day, surely filled with grace, filled with mercy, but for Christians, right? For Christians who know his word, one day he's going to greet us and he's going to force us to look him eye to eye and be accountable. For Why we lived the way we lived And he's going to force us to answer for the motivations and the desires That caused us to either obey his word or to disobey his word When I saw that picture this week I thought man, that's strong But i'm so glad that I know that Because if I was just told one day when you see jesus he's going to give you a hug and a pat on the back and say Welcome to heaven. I may not have been prepared for this moment But if this is who Jesus says he is, that part of standing before him, even in all of his grace and mercy, is accountability to his word, man, if I know that, then I can be accountable to that. Which leads us to ask today's first key question for you. Do you see God's word as commands or suggestions? I mean, the church at Pergamum had to answer this question. We have to answer this question today. Do we see God's word as commands or suggestions let me put it another way is jesus lord or is he a life coach i mean is jesus truly in charge of everything or do you pick and choose some of his teaching that fit and makes your life better because one day according to what we just read in revelation chapter 2 jesus is going to judge you based on your answer and, and you can't fool him church at ephesus he said other people think you're really following me for good motivations but i see your heart so is Jesus Lord or is he life coach? I mean, I want you to think about some issues like this. Why do we forgive people? I mean, on an emotional level, we forgive people because it's healthy for our soul. We forgive people if we're Christians. Be, um, you know, we, we forgive people because of the way God forgave us. We forgive people because we believe in second chance. I mean, there's a lot of reasons we forgive people, but at the end of the day, here's why Christians should forgive people. Because God said so. Because God said so. Why, as Christians, do we turn the other cheek? Well, you turn the other cheek because you don't always want to be punching. You turn the other cheek because you don't want to live in constant conflict. You turn the other cheek sometimes because you're the more mature person. There's a lot of different reasons to turn the other cheek. But as a Christian, here's ultimately why you turn the other cheek. Because God said so. You know, I've got two teenagers who I'm I'm telling, you know, I don't want you to have sex until you're married. Say, why are you doing that as a dad? A lot of good reasons. I don't want them to have an unplanned pregnancy I don't want them to carry all that emotional baggage of bad relationships into their marriage one day I don't want them to get a sexually transmitted disease. There's a lot of good reasons But ultimately here's why I don't want my kids to have sex before they're married because god said so You said well, why christian, why do people tithe? Well, it teaches people generosity Helps them not be greedy Helps them not live for money. Helps them show gratitude. There's a lot of good reasons to tithe. But ultimately, here's why Christians tithe. Because God says so. You say, why is it important to serve in church? Because we need help. Because other people serve you. Because it'll give you great friendships. It'll help you get engaged. But ultimately, why do Christians serve people? Because God says so. And at some point, we've got to roll into the authority of God saying, you know what? I do what God says Because he's in charge And as a christian i'm accountable to him for how I live my life jesus In pergamum is revealed as the judge who's going to hold us accountable for our obedience to his words And i'll be honest with you. I am super relieved to be able to tell you that this morning Because I want you to be ready to meet jesus He's revealed as the judge who will hold us accountable for our obedience to his words one of my greatest fears as a pastor is that people will come and listen to me preach every Sunday, but they won't be ready to meet Jesus one day. I don't want you one day to show up to a Jesus who's holding a sword and say, whoa, 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 whoa. And Jesus says, all this stuff was in my word. Why didn't you follow it? And they say, because Christian never told us. We didn't, like, we didn't know we were supposed to do that. Because as a pastor, I'm told I'll be judged more strictly. And one day when Jesus and I are having that intense face-to-face meeting, he's going to say, did you tell people everything I told you to tell them? Or did you just tell them what they'd want to hear so you could have a big church? And I want to be able to say, I told them everything I read. I told them everything they needed to know. So I'm relieved that this pressure is kind of off me because now you know. And I'm relieved because Jesus says the churches need to know these words here's one of the things they need to know about me. I hold the double-edged sword and people are going to be accountable for what they did with my truth. That's what's revealed about Jesus. What number two is uncovered in our hearts? We look at the church of Pergamum and there's some really challenging stuff to learn. Hopefully some of you Christians that are saying, wow, that's really strong, I didn't know that. And some of you non-Christians are saying, I'm glad Jesus judges that way because that's how I feel judged by people. So I'm glad Jesus judges Christians the way Christians judge everyone else. Hopefully, if you're here today and you're a non-Christian, you're thinking, I like this Christianity thing, if this is the way that it works. What's uncovered in our hearts, number two? Look at verses 13 through 16. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. You might underline that. We're going to talk about it in a minute. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, Who was put to death in your city where Satan lives? There it is again. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will come to you soon, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus said Satan was the place where uh, uh, Pergamum was the place where Satan has his throne. There are three possible interpretations in ancient Pergamum for what maybe this means. The first was the temple of Asclepius Asclepius was the god of healing. We read in the Old Testament that the Israelites had a bunch of poisonous vipers come and bite them, and, and God told Moses take a Take a a copper snake and put it on a pole and hold it up and tell them if they'll look at it, they'll be healed. If they'll trust in me to heal them, I'll heal them. So for the next thousands of years, including today, if you pass an ambulance on the road, you will see a sign of snakes wrapped around a pole. Um, The Greeks made Asclepius one of their gods of healing. There was a temple to Asclepius in Pergamum that history tells us was filled with thousands of non-venomous snakes that freely roam the premises, and if you needed healing, you would come sleep on the floor of the temple and pray that the snakes would bump up against you or crawl over you in the night and heal you. Dear Lord, like, kill me now. Like, I would, like if, I, if I was sick and that's how you got healed, you just take me to heaven, man. Like, I, I, ain't, I ain't doing that. Like, I ain't that's, that's crazy. Obviously with the genesis narrative and satan being seen as a snake in the garden of eden Some people think that's what god was referring to when he called pergamum the the throne of satan Maybe it was all the snakes in the temple. That is just awful Number two, maybe they were referring to the temple of zeus Zeus was the king of the gods on mount olympus in greek mythology and one of the greatest altars in the history of the world that was built to Zeus was in pergamum If you go to Berlin, Germany today, you can go to the Pergamum Museum and you can see the base to this altar in Pergamum built to the Greek god Zeus. The base of the altar was more than 100 feet wide, more than 100 feet deep, more than 40 feet high. These are real life-size people in a real museum with this real 2,000-year-old structure. You can go see that. Some scholars think maybe the temple to Zeus... It's what Jesus was referring to when he said the throne of Satan. Or maybe it was the temple of Caesar worship. Remember, the first place in Asia to have a temple to worshiping Caesar was in Pergamum. And perhaps that's because the cause of so much martyrdom in the early church was Caesar worship. We have to remember when we study the early church, most Christians were not killed for worshiping Jesus. They were killed for not worshiping Caesar. Rome didn't care who you worshiped. You could worship the snakes, you could worship, you could worship Zeus, you could worship Asclepius, you could worship Athena, you literally could worship about anyone you wanted to as long as you also worshipped Caesar. But the Christians were the first group in the Roman Empire that says we cannot serve Jesus and Caesar, so it's just going to be Jesus. In the Roman Empire, there was one day of of the year that celebrated Caesar worship. And on that day of the year, any Roman soldier in any Roman province could command somebody to bow down and worship Caesar. And if they would not, they could kill them or arrest them and send them to the catacombs where they could send them out to the lions to be killed in front of the crowds. And Christians were among the only group that would say, I cannot worship Caesar as God. Jesus is God. Pergamon was the only place in the Roman Empire where Caesar worship was a daily thing, not a once-a-year thing. And Antipas, we don't know who he is. We just know that perhaps on some random day of his life, he was commanded to bow down and worship Caesar. And he said, I can't do that. I worship Jesus. And he was killed. Do you know that the word witness in the Greek language is the word martis? It's the word we get martyr from. Do you know that witnessing in the early church, the most powerful witness in the early church was to give your life for something? If witnessing today was not inviting someone on Facebook to church, if witnessing today was not handing out a track, if witnessing today was martyrdom, would anyone in America witness? Do any of us give our life for Jesus? Because that's what was happening at... Pergamum where satan had his throne Here's the cool thing about this Ultimately, it doesn't really matter what that meant 2000 years ago It matters what it means today See today's second key question is this where does satan have his throne in your life? Not where did satan have his throne in pergamum? Was it exclapios? Was it athena? Was it zeus? Was it caesar? That's beside the point The key question today is where does satan have his throne in your life? where is an area of your life? Where Jesus says, do this, and you don't, or where Jesus has said, don't do this, and you do, where is a place where Satan has set up shop against the revealed word of God that you know? Jesus said, in Pergamum, it was along the areas where Balaam and the Nicolaitans taught. Where do these two interact? Because they existed thousands of years apart from each other. Balaam and the Nicolaitans were the Old Testament and New Testament representatives of those who work to combine all the blessings of Christianity with all the pleasures of culture. Balaam would have worshipped Jesus and Caesar, whatever was easiest. Nicholas taught his people, worship Jesus and Caesar, just whatever is easiest. And we see in these two representatives of people who want a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of everything else. Remember Balaam? Maybe you've heard his story. The title of today's message is Donkey Talk Because of Balaam in Numbers 22. We see Balaam wanted the, the blessing of being obedient to God. And at the same time, wanted the bounty of partnership with the world. Quick overview in Numbers 22. The Israelites had come out of Egypt. They were getting ready to go into the promised land. They had to stop and camp on the edge of Moab, modern day Jordan, before they crossed the Jordan River to go in. The king of Moab saw them and said, they're all going to kill us. Somebody go hire a prophet to curse these people. They went to Balaam and they found him and they said, hey, the Balak, the king of Moab, wants to hire you. We need you to come curse some people. And Balaam said, let me pray about it. He went in and prayed and God said, you can't curse them. They're my people. So Balaam said, I, I can't do it. Sorry. They went home and told Balak he's not coming. Balak said, go back, offer him more, whatever it takes. I need him to come. They went back and they said, hey, Balak sent us back. Is there anything that you could do? And he said, listen, God told me not to curse him. But I mean, even like if you gave me lots and lots and lots and lots, I mean, lots and lots of gold and silver, like, like. It'd be even hard to consider. But, I mean, if you give me lots and lots and lots of gold and silver, like, maybe I could pray about it one more time. And they said, we'll give you whatever. The king's vault is open to you. So he went and prayed about it, and God said, okay, you can go with him, but you're not going to curse him. Somewhere along the way, he must have considered changing his mind. Because we read that God, through his donkey, tried to reroute his journey into a field. And then tried to crush his leg against the side of a hill and then just sat down underneath him and wouldn't go any further. And he started beating his donkey and cursing at it. And the donkey's mouth was open and the donkey says, what are you doing? Listen, have I ever acted like this? Have I ever talked? I'm a donkey. Like, do you not see that God is trying to communicate to you? I'm not sure if those are the exact words, but I'm sure it had to be like something like that. God is trying to tell you don't curse these people no matter how much money they give you. Balaam said, got it. He goes, he sees the people from a few different angles every time he blesses them. The king of Moab says, you have to get out of here. I told you to curse them. He says, listen, I can't curse them, but you can. Because if you will give them all the sinful pleasures of Moab, they'll curse themselves. Like I can't stand up and curse them, but I promise if you offer them your women for their men and your men for their women, if you give them money, if you invite them to all your parties, I won't have to curse them. They will curse themselves if you offer them the pleasures of Moab. Because as much as they want God, they want everything else in life too. And Balak said, got it. He paid the money. He sent his women out. He sent his men out. He sent his pleasures out. And we read tens of thousands of Israelites died in the curse they brought on themselves. Nicholas was kind of Balaam 2,000 years later. Nicholas is interesting because we see in Nicholas someone who the work of ministry filled his soul But the pleasure of the world fulfilled his flesh. We meet him in Acts chapter 6. Here's what happens in Acts chapter 6. The church is growing so fast they can't keep up with all the ministry. So the apostle Peter gets up and says, find the best seven dudes in our church and and put them in charge of stuff. One of them was named Stephen. In Acts chapter 7, his boldness would get him martyred for his faith. One of them was named Nicholas, this guy, the Nicolaitans. Nicholas had such a heart to serve people, but he had no heart for the truth of God. And a group of his followers basically became a group of people that said this, as long as you're doing good for others, you can live however you want. Jesus doesn't care. Just help people. And Jesus said, that's not the way that it works. See, one of the warnings to the church at Pergamum is a warning against being like Balaam or Nicholas. It's this, Satan is fined with a one-edged Christianity because he knows it's not Christianity at all. Satan is fine with a group of people who will do all the work of the ministry while ignoring all the truth of God because that's not Christianity, ultimately. On the other hand, Satan is fine with people who love all the truth of God but won't do any of the work of the ministry. If we all went and lived in a monastery, no one would ever be impacted for the gospel because he knows that's not authentic Christianity on mission. He's fine with a one-edged Christianity and Nicholas had a one-edged Christianity and Balaam had a one-edged Christianity, the blessing of God but all the pleasures of the world, and Pergamum had people who are the same way. But this was not a new warning. I know we have people like this in our church because I'm here and I'm on the stage and I fall into these traps sometimes. And the warning has been the same for 3,000 years. Nearly 3,000 years ago, Elijah stood on top of Mount Carmel, one of my favorite places in Israel. And he spoke to the people of Israel who had not abandoned God. They just added other gods while they worshiped their God too. They were like Balaam and Nicholas. And Elijah stood up and he said, you can't have both. You can't have both. Elijah said to the people of Israel what Jesus is saying to the people of Pergamum. It sounded like this in 1 Kings 18, 21. Elijah went before the people and said, how long are you going to waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, you got to follow him. If Baal, if something else is God, you've got to follow him. But the people said nothing. Elijah said, you can't have one foot in heaven and one foot in the world. You can't do that. Jesus, 2,000 years later, would say, you can't have one hand in heaven and one hand in the world. Like, at some point, you have to choose to be accountable to the revealed word of God. Because Jesus is the one who holds the double-edged sword. The letter to the church at Pergamum tells us we'll be accountable for trying to grasp heaven in our future, forgiveness in our past, but everything that the world offers in between. That's not authentic Christianity. But if we can learn to follow Jesus, if we can learn to accept his revealed word and be accountable to it, look at the blessing we receive, verse 17. Jesus says, whoever has ears, let them hear. What the Spirit says to the church is to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. To the one who will choose to follow and be accountable to God's word, they will receive hidden manna. Manna, we know from the Old Testament, was bread from heaven that came every morning for 40 years. But Jesus said "Man appointed to him because he was the true bread of life that came down from heaven in John chapter six. And he said, just like the Israelites, every day woke up with enough of what they needed. Jesus said, if you will follow me, I promise you every day of your life, when you get up, you will have everything you need for that day. I promise you, I will be the hidden manna. If you will follow me and be accountable to me, every morning when you wake up, there will be enough of me for that day. But he also said, you'll receive a new name. You receive a new name. All throughout scripture, we see people receiving new names. And it was symbolic of them fully embracing their God-called purpose. Their God-called role in life through obedience to the revealed words of God in their lives. Remember Abram, who became Abraham. He got a new name. When he really believed that God would make him the father of many nations and that one day his family would bless the whole world. When he leaned into his purpose, his name changed. His wife, Sarai, became Sarah. Because when she leaned into her purpose, becoming the mother of eventually the nation of Israel, God said, you're now walking in my purpose for you. Jacob, their grandson, would have his name changed to Israel when he finally quit chasing the wealth and the ways of the world, and he returned to follow God with his family. Simon in the New Testament became Peter. He became the rock that the disciples would follow on Pentecost when he stood up and he preached, and Saul would become Paul, that great missionary who would take the gospel to the Gentiles. Let me ask you a question. If on the day you stepped all in spiritually, maybe in your distant past, maybe in your recent past, if on the day you said, you know what, I now understand who Jesus is from the revealed world. I will be accountable to who Jesus wants me to be from the revealed world. If on the day you stepped into following Jesus with your whole heart, if Jesus gave you a new name that day, and he wanted to talk to you today Would he refer to you by your new name or your old name? Because as we move through the new testament, we see jesus call peter Sometimes he calls him simon. Sometimes he calls him peter And it's always a picture of where he at, where he's at in his faith life If he's drifting a little bit he calls him simon just a reminder. Hey, hey, hey Don't go back to being that old person If he's moving forward in faith, he calls him peter living in your purpose to go establish the kingdom of God. If Jesus was to tap you on your shoulder today to ask you a question, would he call you your old name? Have you been drifting back to who you used to be before you met Jesus? Or would he call you by your new name because you've embraced his purpose for your life, his word for your life, and you're following him one day at a time, waking up, realizing with the hidden man and with Jesus, you have everything you need for that day. Three questions I'm asking you to answer this week the third question which name does Jesus call you by the first question do you see God's word as commands or suggestions the second question where does Satan have his throne in your life the third question which name does Jesus call you by I believe if you will answer those questions this week you might have to wrestle with God a little bit but you'll see right where you are spiritually and right where you need to move before we started this service you asked God to speak to you you told him you were listening what does he said? Would you bow your heads and pray with me as we consider that?